Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars, LawPay. Thanks to social media, people who have little if any interest in being a celebrity can become internet famous in a matter of hours, often through none of their own doings. I'm Stephanie Francis Warren, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm speaking with Pete Wentz about what to do when your client goes viral. An attorney, he's the executive director of the Chicago office for ABCO Worldwide, and his work focuses on crisis communications and corporate reputation matters. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephanie. Happy to be here. Great. So I think sometimes with the way the internet works, you know, Monday morning, no one knows who your client is, and then he or she will do something dumb. It gets filmed, and it goes online, and the next day you could do a Google search for their name, and like thousands of hits would come up. If that person reaches out for you as their attorney, I mean, what can you try to do to help manage what's going on or help them manage what's going on? Well, what typically happens often is that employees don't realize how social media affects what they do in their job, and they often think, well, whatever I do off the job, I can do and nobody knows. So, you know, there are cases where, you know, there's a case where an employee of a fast food company was hiking, and he happened to urinate over the product of his own company, and he posts on his Facebook, guess what company I work with? That goes viral, and it goes back to the company, and the company has to decide, well, what do we do now? And obviously, in that case, it's pretty simple. They fire the guy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to be prepared to respond pretty quickly, and companies are getting much more adept at quickly responding when their employees do things that clearly affect the company reputation. So, and that's something, it's like, I don't know, it's gross, but I don't know how many people are going to you know, so you peed on a, a rapper. What if it's something, it's like, you know, we keep seeing all these stories about when someone does something that's really racist or sexist or just in, just crazy, just rude, and it shows up. And it seems like one of the things we reporters do is we Google them and we see their LinkedIn. It's like, oh, they work at such and such hospital. And then it seems like all the time, then you contact the employer and they're like, no, they don't work here. <laughs> But what can you, how can you manage that? Because that's how people are going to think of yeah, it. Yeah, companies really have to look at putting policies in place to making sure that their employees know that what they do off time can affect the company's reputation and that the company can monitor that. There's a little bit of an issue because the National Labor Relations Board says that some of what they do off hours, if it's related to possible organizing activities, the companies can't do anything. But when it's racist or sexist or things like that, companies have a pretty free reign at uh, uh, punishing or terminating employees, and with rare exception, they do. Right. And is there a way you can use social media to try and get your story out as a company or try to clean things up? I mean, I think we've seen some instances where someone does something very objectionable that's filmed, and the company will say, we have fired them. And put out the statement. And is it good to say, I guess you have to think about, well, are they, you know, is that going to be a problem? Are they going to sue me for that? Of course, anybody can sue anyone, right? But how could you clean it up using social media? I think in, in, in prior eras, companies would be pretty quiet about personnel matters. I think in, in, this, in this day and age of social media, companies want to get out in front of this and lawyers want to help them get out in front. And they'll say, yes, we terminated this person for this reason. 
even if they would face a lawsuit later, they're willing to take the risk of the lawsuit because they'd rather get their reputation protected by doing what they believe to be right and saying, if they sue us, fine, let them sue us. That's two or three years down the road. We need to protect our reputation, and that's how we do it, by terminating this employee, and then we take the consequences later, which rarely happens, I think. And I think you're right. Until recently, they did say this is a personnel matter, but now they're saying, no, this person has been terminated following this video. When did you start to see that happening? It seems like it's only been in the past maybe two years or so. I think it's even, it's happened, you've seen it even longer than that and even before social media. I think companies really have started to move away from saying we don't comment on litigation and quickly found that that really wasn't working. And they really thought that when we were dealing with reporters like you and they would be get a question about litigation such as a product liability or something that they really decided that we can't just say we don't comment because that might be their only chance to comment. So they would say something like, if there's an issue here, we're going to fix it. Or if there's a problem with one of our employees, we're going to look into it and we're going to correct it. And they really moved away from just saying we don't comment on litigation because they decided that if we don't comment, we look like we're guilty. And so we ought to comment and say something about our policies and about our our values. And so they started to do that maybe five or six years ago. And then social media made it a lot easier to do that. So for people in work like you, how did you convince them that it's like, you know, Things are changing. You should probably put out a comment. Well, we showed them some stories on it, and then we showed them some – there were some studies that show that even in litigation, business is seen right away as 40 percent. The burden of proof is already against business by 40 percent, and then 20 percent are neutral, and only 20 percent gave business the benefit of the doubt. And so you show people something like that, and then they say, well, we probably need to start telling our story now. And again, I think in-house lawyers became much more sophisticated about it and recognized that their role was really to protect the corporation's reputation. Now, the other side of it, how do you know when you shouldn't say anything? It's like that old litigation expression, stop talking, you're winning. That may not fit exactly here. But I think there is sometimes sometimes you should say something and sometimes you're better off not saying anything. And of course, it depends on the client. It depends on the client. <laughs> also, that's where the, there is a tension actually between the inside counsel who also view their role is protecting corporate reputation and the outside counsel whose role is trying the case. And so there's often a tension between the two because the inside counsel to some extent has the reputational interest at heart and the outside counsel has the trial interest at heart. And so the trial counsel is worried, well, if we apologize or even go anywhere with this, are we affecting the case? The inside counsel says, well, you deal with that later. Let me take care of the reputation and let us take care of the reputation now. And that's where there's tension. Oh, that's interesting. So outside defense counsel is like, nothing is better than anything. And inside general counsel says we need to handle our client's reputation. I think that's right. That's where there is tension that often happens. And more and more you see the even the defense counsel understanding the interests of the client in the reputation management issue. Oh, how have you noticed, perhaps particularly for criminal defense matters for individuals, how is defense counsel using commenting and social media 
differently. I've noticed there's like a fair amount of blogs about celebrities. And it seems like those are places to plant your client's story to a certain extent. If he or she gets arrested, you know, for like domestic violence or they have these juicy gossip bits that to me, they kind of seem like trial balloons. Well, you see that in part because, again, like, as I said, with the corporation reputation, it's the same with, with I think, with uh, certainly with celebrities, but I think with criminal defendants, I, particularly high-profile ones, I think when the charge is made, I think the presumption, there isn't a presumption of innocence. There's mm-hmm. a presumption of guilt. And I think what defense lawyers do, partly for reputation and maybe down the road for if there's a trial, is to is to protect their client's reputation and to be more forward than they ever used to be and say, you know, try to present their client's position if they can, as they best can anyway. Do you think it's kind of a slippery slope, though, and I'm wondering if some criminal defense attorneys just really don't want to get involved in, you know, trying the case on social media or however you would phrase it, because it could backfire on you, too. I think that's right, and I think some don't, and I think that's probably how how some defendants decide who they choose for their defense lawyer. Some mm. may choose somebody very high profile because I want that person to to be my mouthpiece, if you will, in the public, and others may want somebody much lower key to do all of the work behind the scenes to do what they can to have me acquitted because that's really my goal is to be acquitted or right. to be able to— to bargain it to my best defense, others may want someone high profile. It really depends often on the on the individual and his or her advisors. For an attorney that maybe his client doesn't have the resources to hire an outside crisis control group, and maybe this attorney doesn't have a lot of experience, how can you get your client's story out in social media when he's not he or she's not looking so good on a budget? Well, is it impossible? <laughs> well, it isn't. It isn't because obviously, you know, if you have a, a fan base and social media social is to some media extent is free, yeah. free, you know, you, you can often do that. The, the flip side of that, obviously, is that it's hard to figure out where the facts are sometimes in social media. So if there's a fan base for a particular celebrity, you don't know what they're saying and you don't know what is true and you don't know how to quash rumors. And that's that's really the, the challenge with social media and I think some of these high-profile, particularly celebrity-oriented cases is that you have TMZ and the other various gossip-oriented right. sites that pick up sometimes court pleadings where Presumably, yeah. you know, you know, there's there's information. Because their founder is an attorney, yeah. And there you have really, it's difficult to refute what's in a court pleading, and 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 so then if you have the other side has to really decide how they're going to respond. Do you think though, and it's not just I mean, for the most part, sites like TMZ are talking about celebrities, but if somebody like Barbecue Becky from Oakland, I mean, I'm sure she was on TMZ and right. she wasn't a celebrity before that happened. So they're picking up unfamous people's stories too. And I guess one thing to think about is it doesn't matter who you are. Remember, you can always be filmed. Right. And uploaded. (laughs) But if you look at it the other way, I mean, if you go back to the Ray Rice issue with the NFL, I think... You you could just tell us, and for me too, who's Ray Rice? Well, Ray Rice was the football player for the Baltimore Ravens who was accused of domestic violence and 
I mean, the NFL, in my mind, did not do a very good job initially. And they, I think they've suspended him for two games. And they saw oh, there's no video of what happened. He allegedly uh, attacked his, I think, then girlfriend or maybe his fiance. And they saw oh, there's no video of this. Well, TMZ found a video of him in the elevator mm-hmm. fairly brutally attacking his fiance wife. And then the NFL obviously looked terrible at this, and the NFL then suspended him for a significantly longer period of time, and he's not played since. And then you sit there and say, well, TMZ did a public service, and they did something that the NFL with all of its resources couldn't do. And it's just kind of an amazing story. So should you assume in this day and age there's always going to be a video? I think that's what everybody assumes, certainly in in those high-profile celebrity-type cases. And if you have a client who's been arrested for something and it's gotten a lot of news on social media, even if that person is not high profile, should you ask him or her, you know, where were you? Where could there possibly be a video about this? And then go check. I think that's right. If it's certainly outside in the public, I mean, you know, there are you know, obviously, video cameras everywhere anymore, security cameras, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we obviously saw it here in Chicago with the recent conviction of the police officer who mm-hmm. murdered a suspect. And it was pretty clear from that case, the dash, the, the camera that was on, and it was pretty clear as to what happened, notwithstanding the story that he and two of his fellow officers said. And, right. And that would be for the Van Dyke trial. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Right. And what do you think about, I've noticed this back to Chicago again, when you have aldermanic races, there's a good chance that one of the aldermen, well, both of them are on Facebook. Should they get involved in the comments? And to, to what extent? Because you can really go into hornet's nest on those Facebook comments, I yeah, think. We tell our clients not to do that. We just said there's no plus side to that. And it's the same with blogs to some extent because there are bloggers on everything and, mm-hmm. and and you're able to do some research that shows which bloggers are important and influential and which ones aren't and so we'll study bloggers and we'll know for instance if this blogger writes on a particular topic the New York Times might pick it up and so if they're going to pick it up and they mention you then you're likely you know we do it for pharmaceutical company if they mention you the New York Times will pick it up and you're probably going to have to comment we had a client that one blogger was driving this client crazy, and we told him, you know, that's fine that they're driving you crazy, but nobody's paying attention to this blogger, so don't even <laughs> think about responding to them. <laughs> and and they heeded us, but they weren't happy about it. <laughs> Very interesting. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to talk about public apologies. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person, no equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com podcast to sign up and get your first three months free. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm speaking with Pete Wentz, a Chicago attorney whose work focuses on crisis control and reputation management for attorneys. We're talking about what to do when your client goes viral. So 
Pete, we have seen so many public apologies and some denials in the past year, particularly around sexual harassment and assault allegations. What's your advice on public apologies? Not just, I mean, for anything, because it seems like in general, the lawyer's point of view is don't apologize. But that seems to be not working sometimes. On the other hand, there's been some pretty insincere, or you can't apologize and defend yourself, or you can, but it's probably not easy to do. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see that evolve. I I, I wanted at one point to do a a blog myself called I'm Sorry, where I would kind of post all the recent apologies because sometimes Mm. you'll see somebody will make clearly homophobic comments or racist comments, and then their apology will be, well, I apologize to anyone who may have been offended by my remarks. Mm -hmm. And those are just so insincere that they really don't come across as an apology. So I think that, and what we advise our clients, is if you've done something wrong, we do encourage them to apologize right away and then say what you're going to do to make things better, to make things right. Because if you don't, you're never going to get on the side of reputation, even if down the road that apology could come back to haunt you. So say you're a fast food company and somebody goes into your restaurant and they have an allergic reaction and they suffer serious injury or worse, they die. Now, you may have a good case that they didn't read your warnings or whatever, whatever it is, but if you don't express some empathy for them, you just look like a cold, heartless company. So what we would you know, recommend is that you do apologize and express your empathy and reach out to the family. And down the road, you'll fight the legal issue about whether they should have read your warning. They'll fight back that the warning wasn't, you know, wasn't obvious enough. But who cares? What you've done at the beginning is you've shown that you care about your customers, which is very important. Well, do you think it maybe is too soon to tell, but is it possible now that if a business apologizes for something like about a food reaction, it winds up as a fatal, that's not going to get in as evidence in the wrongful death case? I think that's possible, too. I'm not as conversant on the rules of evidence, but Uh I think that's what the trial lawyers would say, that it would get in and it would be an admission of liability. And I think the answer might very well be if you're trying the case is when you're talking to the jury, you're going to say, you know, of course we're going to apologize for what we did and what happened to this this person. You know, we're a human company. We're going to apologize. And I think in your oral argument, you can talk about why you said what you said and, and, and then try to explain to the jury, don't let that sway you from what actually happened and what the rules are and the legal theories are. Do you think with individuals it can be seen as a sign of weakness or perhaps the individual would see it as a sign of weakness. I'm thinking politics aside, I'm thinking about the confirmation hearings for Judge Kavanaugh. And I'm wondering if at the get-go when the sexual harassment allegations came up, if he would have said, I don't recall that happening. I am very sorry that the woman accusing me has gone through this pain, she says, I don't recall that happening, but whatever happened, I'm sorry. I mean, could he perhaps have avoided that whole second set of hearings and the investigation? 
I don't know if he could have avoided the hearings or the investigation. I think it would the country would have been better off had he done that, had the Republicans done that, and they started to do that, and then they kind of walked back from it. And and because it's seen as a sign of weakness too, by some people, right? I'm not saying that's correct, but that's what I runs think that may head. that may have been right or a sign that they're. I, I know you probably don't want to get too political, but I do that, not, that they're no. <laughs> that they're that their party leader who was initially empathetic to her was less empathetic mm-hmm. and I think they took the lead from from him and became less empathetic which can I think you, was unfortunate. Can you show empathy and still be perceived as being right? I think you can show empathy and being perceived as right by figuring out a way to say and we'll take it out of that context and and when we can take it into the context down the road, if you assume we'll take the, the the restaurant example, and if you assume down the road that this case went to trial, and you say we're really, really sorry that this happened to Mrs. Jones, it was a terrible tragedy for her and her family. But frankly, it wasn't our fault, and I think that probably goes on every day in courtrooms mm-hmm. around the country where people are tragically injured, and companies are saying. It wasn't as a result of our product or our actions or whatever. Um, it's tough, but I think if you're a trial lawyer, you have to say that way. You can't come in any other way, I don't believe. Do you find, generally speaking, people who try a lot of cases and are successful at it, are they pretty good at understanding social media and how to use it for their clients, or are they kind of old-fashioned about it? Yeah, I don't think that the trial lawyers, I think they pretty much disdain, uh, the, excuse me, the defense lawyers disdain yeah. social media. I think that the plaintiff's lawyers look for ways to use it, but I don't think anybody uses it during the trial. I think before the trial. Oh, yeah, I meant in general. Yeah, in general, yeah. I think the plaintiff's lawyers certainly use it. The defense lawyers, because they tend to represent companies and or doctors or whomever, don't necessarily want to make public all of their cases Mm -hmm. or even all of their wins. Right, right. And if you're trying to say your client's gone viral and you're trying to get their story out, is there a way you can do it that's not just completely obvious? Sometimes it's really obvious. Someone, you know, if there's a TV camera around, get out of their way because they're going to stand in front of you and, and talk. Is there... I mean, can you kind of do it, not on the download, but can you do it? Well, sometimes you can use third gently. parties to do mm-hmm. it. So sometimes that's what we've done. It's more in business-to-business cases and less in, in, in individual cases where you can get experts. So if a ruling has gone against you, you try to get some experts to, to blog and say, this was a bad decision, here's why, it was wrong on the law, wrong on the facts, and so you try to, to build support that way. And so you're not talking about your case, but somebody else who supposedly knows the law is talking about right. your case. So, And you mentioned before the break how you guys will follow websites and see like who picks up on their pieces and what kind of traffic right. they get. So it sounds like if you have, say you have an individual client who is going viral and he or she looks not so great in this and he could be facing criminal charges, how can you do a search to look for, uh, you know, people on Twitter or the blogs or the Facebook pages or the Instagram to try to get who would be good messengers for the message you want to get out? 
Well, there are various tools that we use and others use that where you can put in various terms and various mm -hmm. words and various media, and you can come up with kind of audiences that are following this particular issue, and then you can see who's influencing this particular issue or this particular person. Just on Google, person. or is it a it's, different it's app? It's a little bit more, it's, it's kind of proprietary software. Oh, that so the business has its own. Yeah, we, gotcha. have, we have our own that enables us to go do some of that research. If you don't have that, do you have any advice? Well, I think, you know, using things like Google and, and can help you do that. You can just put in kind of some search terms and, and see you know, who's following a particular person, a particular issue, and do it very, very easily. You know, if it's a criminal law case, you can kind of put in some of the search terms and see who some experts might be. It's a little bit more difficult to get beyond experts to find individuals. I, I think that would be a little bit harder to do. And we would have we would have trouble finding individual bloggers who might be experts. Do you know if for smaller businesses or individuals who have a little bit of disposable income, can their council usually convince them to hire an outside a crisis control group? Is this something maybe you should think about if you're just tied up in doing the defense? I think it depends on the case. It's always worthwhile, we think, particularly if you're sued, to kind of get your position out there to not just to the media but also to your customers and your consumers to make sure that they know that if you believe you've acted rightly mm -hmm. and in accordance with your values and that your business is going to continue to go forward because you've, you're doing the right thing and will continue to do the right thing. And sometimes it helps to have a firm that does this work help you tell your story. And it's particularly true if you're a defense company, you know, being sued by a prominent plaintiff's firm, whether it's in liability or, or business that does want to in a class action lawsuit, wants to, you know, get members of the class, so they're going to publicize mm -hmm. as much as they can. And so it helps you to tell your story if you can. Do you have advice on finding an outside group that is good? I think there's some public relations professionals that you always pay attention to their emails, and there's others that just kind of um, take up your time, and that's it. Well, you know, there are probably, I would say, a handful of firms that do a lot of this work and mm -hmm. are pretty well known for it. Obviously, ours is one, right. but, but there are others that, that do it and have experience, particularly with companies that have been in, in litigation and in crisis. And I think knowing that helps partly because we know how the attorney-client privilege works, and that's really important when you're in, in litigation because you want to work with the lawyers to make sure that you protect the privilege that they have. And, and if you haven't done that kind of work, sometimes you may get crosswise with the lawyers, and the lawyers really get would get angry if you do. Mm. And so I would imagine it's also good. You don't want just someone who does public relations. You want someone specifically with crisis control. I, I think that goes a long way to help, yes. Okay. Now— Let's switch this a bit. Say you have an employee who's going viral for something wonderful. Like say he won, you know, he's like an American Idol finalist or he just did something really touching that showed up on a video and is just going viral. How can you use that in a good way for your business? Well, what we what we do in those kinds of situations, obviously, is we would encourage 
our other employees to use their social channels to tweet or on Facebook or whatever else they would use to talk about this person's success Mm -hmm. and to celebrate that and not to overly link his work to the fact that he works for us unless it was a company you know, if he won a company award, if he, was, if he won something tied to the company, we would. But otherwise, we would just casually mention it. We wouldn't want to overly promote the relationship because it was something that he or she did on their own. We would want them to celebrate that. So we might tangentially relate it to the company. But, of course, uh, we would do it. But we often encourage our employees when something good happens to an individual employee to, to tweet that out or use LinkedIn or whatever, whatever vehicles that they like to okay. promote them. All right. And that's everything we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was great. Yes. And listeners, thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard today, please rate us at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered.